Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I am so excited to welcome Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson to the Podcast One family. Listen as Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet, pours his soul into conversations with fascinating minds, celebrities, and athletes. Along with his cosmic millennial sidekick and former NFLer, even Britain, Kid Dynamite dives deep into the issues impacting us all today. This podcast will change the way you see the world. Don't miss Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ben Taylor of Thinking Basketball, whether you whether you consider that a book, a YouTube channel, a Patreon, it is all of those things. Um, and we did we've done some great podcasts over the last little while. We talk Luka Doncic's amazing first month of the season, what other players might kind of join him in that conversation, championship contenders, how the season has changed our perceptions, and a lot of other really interesting things. Episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, which is awesome. Episode runs about an hour 20. Uh, some really good stuff in here. Hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat as always. Yeah, and I think a good place to start with this is something that you and I discussed on the one part of the extended podcast that we did together for you, for your show, Thinking Basketball. The small the small preview. The small preview. And so we did a what became a two-episode... It was three episodes. Well, it was two on breakout players. You're right. It right. was three total. We did two, two breakout and then one regression. And one of the players that we discussed at length in that was Luka Doncic because a really interesting one, the rookie of the year, not exactly a coming out of nowhere candidate, but the idea that, that we discussed and you articulated it very well was that even even if somebody isn't coming out of nowhere, they could still make a big leap. And I would say we're more than a month into the season. He has absolutely done so. It's it's a bit of a leap. Yeah, um, it's absolutely crazy the the level he's playing at actually my latest video that is released today is on this i just i i I just couldn't not comment on how crazy he's playing but the point that we discussed was essentially this idea that even though you already have a good player and you don't think about him as a breakout candidate it's the degree of improvement that makes these meaningful shifts that moves the needles for teams. And that's really how we got into that exercise, you know, trying to pinpoint like, okay, if a team has a guy or two take a leap, what does it mean? In this case, Luca has gone from a good player to a great, great player, and it's having material impact, uh, you know, for the Mavericks. They're like, I think, fourth or fifth in margin of victory. Actually, they're a little higher in margin of victory. They've had an easier schedule. And their offensive rating is first in the league up at 118 right now. So it, it has been a, uh, a pretty seismic impact out of Dallas so far. Right. And something that comes up every once in a while, which I think is is really important tying in with what you said, is that, sure, it's great when a player jumps from being a rotation player to a fringe starter or even a starter. Like That is an important jump, and for certain franchises, that can be transformative. But there is a different, and I would argue in most cases, and basically all cases, more important leap that a player could do from solid starter to superstar. Because superstars 
one of the most important benefits that they bring is that generally either through the attention they bring or what makes them great, so that could be defensively, you can use players differently or offensively, is that they make more limited players more valuable. Right. And that's something that Luca has really brought out this year. And, you know, we, we wondered a little bit about Dallas's depth. They have a lot of guys I like, but they didn't have as many that I absolutely love. And I think that he is making life a lot easier on the Tim Hardaway Juniors of the world, on the Seth Currys of the world, Kristaps Porzingis as well. And that is a huge tipping point because then, yes, great players are still great to have next to great players. Like, that's not a surprise. We'll talk about the Lakers and the Clippers and a lot of other teams later on. But, I mean, to, to bring up another, another player we'll discuss later, LeBron James has done this for his entire career. He has turned more limited players into potentially valuable pieces. And that is a game changer, not only from the product on the court, but also from Donnie Nelson's perspective off it. You know, when you're thinking about personnel, it becomes very different because somebody who isn't as great at creating their own shot isn't going to need to do that as much. And I think that is the, for me, the predominant takeaway from Lucas so far is that he has been so great at setting people up, but also been more effective as an individual scorer than I anticipated. Honestly, probably, I mean, and it's a month in, so you don't want to say this is the new normal necessarily, but he has been more productive as an individual scorer already than I anticipated for at least a few years, if he even really got there. Yeah, if, if ever. Um, and of course, of course, that will probably come back down to reality a little bit. Uh, but you know, going through this latest video, I realized this isn't, this isn't streaky shooting. This isn't like a hot stretch of threes and mid range jumpers. He's getting to his stuff. He's getting to his spots. He's full of counters. He's bigger than small guards. So he abuses them there. He's quicker than bigger players. He's, he's added some athleticism, his crossover. I, I get flashbacks to Tim Hardaway every time he chucks that thing through his legs. So there's a lot there that's stable. And to your point, it's funny you didn't mention the uh, the three guys who I probably think of the most that he's helping. Um, Dwight Powell, Maxi Kleba, and DeLon Wright. Absolutely. Um, right. Although certainly the guys you mentioned in Curry and, uh, and shooting and Hardaway, they, they're all there. But it's like, OK, what what can Dwight Powell do on offense? Well, he has roll gravity. Well, when you have roll gravity and a shooter, and the Mavs put these lineups out there, all of a sudden, when he gets in a pick and roll with Dwight Powell, it's like you have problems. All of a sudden, Kleba's stretching to the line, and he's part of these dynamic units. You know, Porzingis, pick, uh, roll, or pop. It's just like uh, there's a lot in that offense that I also think is very sustainable that's going to be very hard to take away. And I, honestly, Danny, I just I need the playoffs to be here now because – I want to see a team scheme against this, and I want to see how they react to it. Right, and and that's actually something Nate and I got into on the 15 and 60. I was very critical of Kristaps Porzingis and his ability to attack switches. And what I explained at the end of that little rant was the reason why that matters is because Dallas is in a new part of the conversation now. This is not hope you get in seven or eight seed, maybe you win a game or two, and congratulations. I'm already starting to think about Dallas in the immediate as, you know, a team that could compete in the first round, maybe win it against a really favorable opponent, which I don't expect because the top of the West is very strong. But more importantly, thinking about Dallas two to three years from now, because Luca, yes, it is true that there, you know, like there isn't, 
you don't think of there being that much room to improve, but A, there is, and B, you think about where Dallas can be in a couple of years, that if he if he can be a draw, and they already have Porzingis locked in under contract, all those sorts of things, that Dallas is, you know, the best Mavericks team of this general ilk is probably going to be a couple of years from now, and then that team could potentially be a championship contender, and so any weakness that is potentially there especially if it's one that could be corrected in that passage of time, starts to matter more. Because, yeah, if you're losing in the first round every year, those core sort of weaknesses do matter because they're probably a part of the reason that you're out, but they don't really affect the arc of the league. Whereas Dallas, to me, they have to be in that conversation now because while it is not a certainty, it is a distinct enough possibility. You know, it's so interesting. We did the breakout podcast with some of the impetus behind teams like, okay, the the Nowitzki-Nash-Mavs breaking out. And I think they won 50 in the season they broke out. The West was crazy, so they weren't a high playoff seed. Or the Durant-Westbrook-Thunder, you know, jumping up into that level. And when you go back and you look at it before the season, you say, okay, this is possible. But you never really realistically go, okay, a team is going to add 20 or 25 wins. And yet, to your point, they're they're ahead of schedule. They're now in a place where the best is in the future, but they're already probably among the better team. I don't think they're at a championship level for me, but they're going to be in the mix where they they can compete with high level teams every night. They're going to probably be in a very contentious playoff series in April against one of these other high level teams. And it's funny we talk about timeline, right? Like young players growing into a window. Uh, for me, always very high on Luca. I expected this kind of shape to the team and his play in a year or two. And his explosion, his explosive growth is happening so fast that it's like, what is what does that do to their timeline? Do they need to hurry up and bring in more pieces in the immediate future. I mean, you know more about their cap situation than me off the top of our heads. So it's just a very interesting thing to see growth this fast. Well, it also, Dallas doesn't have a ton of flexibility for 2020, but they do potentially for 21. That is the last year before Luca gets fully paid. And the big benefit of having an owner who's willing to spend is, when, it, when we say a team can do that, the downside is that you are eventually going to be either you know right on the tax or into the tax. In Dallas's case, they'd be into it. Well, if you have Mark Cuban, that's not a big deal. And he apparently is, is willing to pay it. We, we would be shocked, especially with how good this team is. So that's really the window to me. And this also makes signings like the Dwight Powell one a little bit more troubling, except that Dallas has this interesting characteristic where other than their key players... None of the money that they have on their books is really a high value, a high a high cost. And so what that means is Dwight Powell probably not worth the I think it's about 10 million that he's going to get paid in 21-22. But 10 million isn't that big a deal to get off especially if the cap keeps rising, even if it doesn't rise as quickly as it has the last few years. So they don't have as much flexibility as I would have liked considering how good this team ended up being. But they can gain more without a significant cost. The downside there being that they've already given up some draft picks in the Porzingis trade. So they're not it's not as easy for them to do, let's say, like what the Bucks did last year, where they gave up a first round pick to get off some bad money and add George Hill. That sort of a trade would be harder for Dallas because of their extended obligations. Still doable in certain circumstances. But also the unusual thing about Dallas is they don't have the same time pressure 
as the Bucks did because of Giannis's pending free agency extension negotiations, all that kind of stuff. Like, and also the Bucks were unambiguously in the championship window when they made those moves because they were the best team in the league. Hmm. So, okay, so just to clarify or sure. sum up or sum it up, the tw- we, we shouldn't expect much this summer in 2020. Yes, but but next summer potentially we could see some jiggering of the roster or another big piece added. Right. Like I I would need to do more work on it, but I think they, they could get to like the seven to nine year max without too much finagling. And that's enough, you know, like and this, yeah. the seven to, the seven to nine max is the one to use for these sorts of purposes, because the assumption can never really be that a zero to that a zero to six year guy is going to be available for the max because. The only time those guys are available is when they're not max caliber players, you know, like Otto Porter, even though he ended up getting matched, you know, like it's that type of level of max guy, not the Carl Anthony Towns of the world, because the Carl Anthony Towns of the world aren't going to change teams. Right. So, well, that was an, that was another guy you were high on yep. in the preseason, and, and he's delivered so far as well. He has. Yeah. And, and that is one of the other kind of dynamics that I've been really interested in this year. I want to talk about the top in an extended fashion a little bit later, but what has changed for me is there were this group of teams, Dallas is most prominent among it, of these young teams that you're like, well, there's a theory behind this, but they need to figure it. We need to see it in action. And I'm fundamentally conservative in that respect because I've seen teams that made sense in theory just not work. And Minnesota, well, they had... More, more likely than not. I yeah, think I, I would say more likely than not, especially... If you get into a circumstance where some of what the team did the year before was prone for regression, I think Orlando is kind of in this in this mold where, you know, they did a lot that was good, but their offense was better than I anticipated. And so you're like, well, how much of that is real? And Orlando proved it more than, let's say, Minnesota did last year. And so with Minnesota, with Dallas, with New Orleans, who where it hasn't worked out partially due to health, um, Sacramento, I think you can make this argument, too. We we kind of wondered, okay, what of what they did, what where will the theory hold and where will it not? And with Minnesota, there's still a lot of improvements that they can do. But the, for me, the most important thing that they've done, yeah, Towns, the, the proof of concept that Towns being a little bit more freed like Saunders did at the end of last year. Yep, proof of concept. He can do that. We've seen it. Like, I mean, the his handle and a lot of other things for his size are just, just jaw-dropping. The comfort shooting threes now. But for me, the more important long-term takeaway for the Timberwolves is that, by and large, they've been better defensively than I anticipated. They've been forcing – because the more important thing that a defense can control is where an opponent shoots rather than how well they do. You know, there are certain things the Brooklyn Nets are going to probably be a catalyst for for – Analytically, mind, analytically minded people about the quality of the shots you concede is is also important because of the mid-rangers they're giving up. But Minnesota, I think by and large, they've done a better job of those kind of more controllable elements than I anticipated. And that doesn't mean they're going to be some great defense in the near term, but if they can be passable and then they're already talented offensively but could get so much better with a few adjustments... <clears throat> Um, and and so, so, so basically to me, I don't know if they can necessarily transition into that top, top tier, unless they get somebody else who is dynamic offensively. And then those two guys basically create a feedback loop and then it just becomes unstoppable. You know, I, I think that's often required especially because Towns is, he's not Luca. The ball is just in his hands less. So I don't think an individual can turn it. And also, I mean, Dallas has very different perimeter talent. 
But Minnesota, I think what they have shown to me is that the the base for being a steady playoff team of you defend well enough and then you have this explosion offensively. So now if they get deeper and they can tweak some things, then they maybe move into like, and it's weird to say because they made the Western Conference Finals last year, but that Portland range for the last couple of years where it's like you expect them to be in even if you don't necessarily think they're going to win the conference or anything. You know, I love the defensive forward tandem they have with Covington and Akogi. And I think Towns is good enough there that they can be solid on that end. I think right now their defensive rating unadjusted for schedule or anything is a little bit ahead of league average. So solid, but I, they they absolutely need another dynamic offensive player to pair with Towns, in my opinion, probably because he's not a great game-changing defender. If he were a great game-changing defender... And you could pair him with Covington and Akogi and get enough offense on the other end, mostly from towns and shooters that you could surround them with or something like that. Then I think they'd have a better shot at sniffing sort of that upper crust. But they're, they're to me, still a large piece away. And that I don't know how you feel about them, but my, you know, I am not putting money on Andrew Wiggins being that piece. I'm not either. And another challenge for Minnesota, largely due to. Thibodeau's mismanagement is that they don't have enough flexibility like you would expect for a youngish team that needs to improve you know like I talked about how Dallas could maybe clear max money in 2021 because of Wiggins Towns and even somebody like Gorgie Jang who still has one more season after this season it's just hard for them to make those fundamental transformations and that's I think why some people have been interested in the possibility of D'Angelo Russell or or numerous other things is because it is hard to add that piece. Orlando's another good example here. You know, Orlando has this wonderful defensive foundation with Isaac and Gordon and to an extent Vooch and now Markel Fultz has been interesting there too. But because of all the money they have tied up in their various veterans, it's hard for them to make that a next step. And so Orlando probably is going to end up being, you know, a, a respectable team. I think they'll, I, my guess is they'll make the playoffs this year, though we'll see Vooch's injury and everything else. And Minnesota, they might end up being shortchanged long term, you know, kind of from a ceiling perspective by those sorts of moves. And that's why their big hope should be that either somebody overvalues one of the things they have or that one of their players. I think the most likely here would be Jarrett Culver just because he's youngest, but that somebody on the roster right now can can make a big jump and become that second offensive force. What have you thought of him? Have you been able to see Culver enough to get an impression of his game? I, uh, I, I need to watch more, but I have not been particularly impressed with what I've seen. And, and a really big factor for me with young players, you know, you're looking for flashes. And, yeah. and it's, what is their, basically, what is their special skill? Like, what is it that they can do? Because elite basketball players can always do this. What is it that they can do that either makes life significantly easier for their teammates or is really hard to stop? So that could be as basic as a step back three, or they have really good passing vision, or they just have a knack for the ball and they generate a ton of steals. And with Jared Culver, I haven't really seen that. You know, he doesn't, he he has some good instincts. I like some of the judgments that he makes, but his jump shot isn't great. And it, the mechanically, I don't love it. Uh, you know, just it's not going in. That's also a problem. But then he also, you know, I, I, I've used D'Angelo Russell for this before. I think that they're a level below somebody like DeMar DeRozan who can get to his spots. I just don't like the spots DeRozan gets to where 
they can't really impose their will on opposition. They can maybe take advantage of the seams that that exist just because defenses aren't perfect. But really talented players and the ones who move the needle for successful teams create those advantages too. And that's a big pro- and that's a big problem for me with Culver so far. And this was true of him at Texas Tech as well. He didn't really do that. You know, he didn't get into the lane and then force the other team to freak out. And so he's so then then all of a sudden there's an open pass to the corner. He finds that pass. That guy drills the three. You know, there hasn't been as much of that with him, and that's a concern. Yeah. So you you use the word flashes, which I think is the perfect way to describe it. And I asked specifically about Culver because what I find interesting, I've been digging through Towns film and, you know, obviously he plays for the Timberwolves. So you catch these glimpses and there's like a thing with him that's like a level below a flash. It's like it's like a glimpse. It's it's like one or two plays. Should we call that a glimmer? A glimmer. Okay, let's call it a glimmer. Um, I think I've seen maybe two or three plays the whole season. And it's weird. Because you look at his shooting numbers, it, it's just bizarre. He's shooting 42% from the free throw line right now. Uh, he's 28% from downtown. These, of course, are horrible shooting indicators and, and really bad omens going forward. But it's like if he could be a just decent jump shooter and make threes with his tools defensively, and then you get these little glimmers on drives to the hoop where, again, I don't think you're talking about a very high-ceiling offensive player. But that package, if you kind of close your eyes and squint hard enough in your mind's eye, you can see something. And yet, you know, of course, part of the challenge with projecting out young players like that is, and he's not even that young, um, is, okay, can you ever actualize? Can you actually become the thing that, you know, can you fulfill your potential that we see in these little flashes, or in his cases, I'm going to call them glimmers. Well, and and I wanted to, I forgot to talk about this with Luca. I think this is another important element is that young players, they're going to get better. I mean, with, with Wiggins, Brandon Ingram has been an example here. You know, it, it can take some time to figure parts of it out, especially for perimeter players who need to get stronger. I think Culver could benefit from some strength as well, even though his defensive tools aren't, aren't bad. But what I wanted to get at with Luca, which I think is really compelling for the case of him becoming even better long term, is that there are a lot of rookies, well, not a lot, there are a portion of rookies that really do impress, exceed expectations in their rookie year. And for me, two examples of this recently would be Donovan Mitchell and Jason Tatum. And so a question that we all grapple with, and I'm sure team builders do too, is how much of that is real? And or is that the new baseline or maybe is there some regression? You know, in Tatum's case, he was making every three imaginable and some other things. And with Donovan Mitchell, you know, he, he had some some parts of it that were sustainable and some parts that were not. And what Luca has done so far, it, I don't know that he's established being in the MVP conversation as a new baseline for him. But what he has shown is that the real strides we saw last year, like how impressive he was as a rookie, that that was for real. And so even if it's regression from this point, I think we can establish a new normal for him that is higher than than we thought because you know it's 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 not it's not like that was unrealistic. And so that to me is a really important takeaway for a player like Luka that isn't always true of those rookies that are dominant. Okay, here's a really interesting question. Do you think Mitchell and Tatum were better in their rookie year than they were in their second year? Or do you think those players have slowly improved in each of their three seasons? 
I think they've improved a, a portion of what we think of as, you know, success level is just whether those shots happen to fall. And, you know, with Mitchell, it wasn't actually the threes. It was the two pointers. He was hitting a ton of mid-range shots that first year. And that toned down a little bit um, from what I recall in his second year, but that didn't make him a worse player. It's just, that's something that it's just something that happened. Um, He also took on a larger workload that second year. And with Tatum, again, I, I don't, I, especially defensively, I thought he took major strides. He deserved praise for being way better defensively as a rookie than most rookies are, but I think he's gotten better, get more fundamentally sound, a little bit stronger, wish he got a little bit more, a little bit stronger. With Tatum, the other thing that happened, and I don't think this made him worse necessarily, is I remember back when I watched his film in college, um, I my, my biggest criticism of Tatum was that he was too comfortable taking bad shots. And something that changed at moments in time, some of that was actually in his rookie year, was when you give Tatum more usage, I think that it changes his shot mix. Now, this is generally true for players, but it changes his shot mix into something that I don't like as much. And so the argument there is that maybe he eventually works his way to better shots and gets stronger, and then, you know, you get into all that. But Tatum, we, we, you and I have used the word scalability in this sense, and my instinct is that Tatum is less scalable than most players like him, partially because of those long twos. So that was a, a a good summary there because the reason the reason I asked is specifically because guys like this will develop that reputation, right? They'll have a breakout year, their rookie year, the expectations are through the roof as they were last year, and then the number the shooting numbers are down or they have an expanded role, you know, circumstance dictates that their role changes a little bit. And you have some shooting numbers that go down. You have some other numbers that might change or go down as they adapt to the role. And the the general consensus takeaway that I see all the time, I certainly saw it last year, is, oh, these guys are worse. And to me, that's, you know, I'm a little unique in this sense, but that's antithetical to how I evaluate players. Because if you change their role, of course, the outcome is going to be different. Sometimes it might be the same, but, you know, sometimes it might be better. Sometimes it might be worse. And I really try to focus and look at, you know, what skills a player has, what decisions they're making, uh, how they're fitting in with their circumstances. And last year, Tatum, it was sort of, you know, two steps forward, one step backward, kind of zigzagging growth for me where he had to learn things or as he's expanding. So that whole thing with, to continue with Tatum, Kobe over the summer, you know, then he wants to get into more deep twos and step backs and he has a little bit of a green light and Hayward's coming back, but he's still, you know, he's starting, but then he goes to the bench. You have all these things taking place and you called it like his defense continues to get better, better. His defense is even better this year. I think both Mitchell and Tatum, um, are very under-discussed and underrated as defenders right now in their third year. And I think when you add in the other things that they've developed, there's, to me, steady improvement, even if sometimes it doesn't always look like that when you look at a bottom-line stat sheet. I just think that's a fascinating thing to think about with young players as they develop. Another way of kind of calibrating expectations on this is something that's on basketball reference and I think is really useful is what proportion of a player's, I think they have to use made, made field goals. Be, I would love to see it in terms of attempts instead of just made field goals are assisted. And so for Tatum, let's look at twos first. So for twos, Tatum's rookie year, 57% were assisted. 
then that dropped all the way to 50% last year. So that, that's a pretty big reduction when you think about the volume of shots that any player, especially Tatum, Tatum's taking 20 field goals a game. So if you drop that 7%, that's actually kind of a lot. And then this year, that's back up to 54. So it's a little bit closer. So he's not doing as much there. But then at three-point range, he's went from 92% assisted. So that's basically, you know, all you could think about, basically all of it is created by other people. Now he's all the way down to 78%. So that means he's doing a, a meaningful portion of his threes are generated by his own offense. Now, he's not shooting the 43% of his rookie year. I think that was something that was always prone to regression. But shooting 36% like he is right now on a higher frequency and a more self-created shot mix, that actually the three-point part of this, if for Tatum is positive, what's most interesting to me is the other two big problems that I had with him last year were that what I like they relate to what I call the aggressiveness factor which is how often are you getting to the basket and how often are you getting fouled and Tatum had a huge drop off last year in his free throw attempt rate and his restricted area shot rate and so to me you know there can be different factors you talked about role but some of it is just that he wasn't getting there as much this year the free throw attempt rate has not gone up which bothers me a lot But he has the slight uptick back in terms of restricted area. But then the big thing that swung, and I assume this will get better in time, is that instead of making, let's 63, 63% and 68% of his shots around the rim, this year he's all the way down to 53. So if that gets up, then you start to look at his true shooting going up and everything else. And I haven't seen anything in Tatum. He has, well, except I guess he does drive into a thicket a little bit more than I'd like. I don't know that there's anything to make me think that 53% is just how he is now, that he, that you could get closer to where he was. So I love that you talk about those aggression factors as getting to the rim and getting to the line. And in fact, for my Patreon subscribers, one of the things I put together in the stat dump that I give them is this idea of uh, the the share or the percentage of your overall shooting possessions or true shot attempts that come from either free throws or shots at the rim. And he's at he's like kind of middle of the pack right now. He's at 37 percent of his offensive attempts are coming from there. And just for some pers- perspective, someone like Luca is 40 percent or his teammate Jalen Brown is 41 percent. Pascal's 42 percent. So guys of that ilk won't always have, you know, crazy high percentages there. It's usually big men, um, but it's not necessarily on the high side. And I think the idea for Tatum, again, like talking about growth that doesn't always look like growth. Last year, to me, he wasn't hitting pockets and just putting his head down and getting where he, you know, forcing the issue to the basket. This year, he's doing that. I think he's a little he's a little sturdier athletically and a little tighter with those drives. So he's more comfortable making them. And I thought he developed this or he showed this over the summer with FIBA play. But now the next level is like he hasn't figured out how to finish or draw contact there. He's he's not good at either of those things. And yet there's no reason why he can't be better. You know, you cited that that number at the rim. It's like there's no reason it should be that low. But this is part of growth to me. This is part of growing pains and development. If if he were a player who, I don't know, were three inches shorter or less athletic or didn't have broad shoulders or something like that, I would think, okay, you're going to be stuck, probably not getting much more. You're not going to squeeze much more juice out of that orange just because you can get to the rim. But, you know, now he's learning how to get to the rim. 
Next step is how the heck can you figure out how to use your body properly? He's taken off off the wrong foot. He's jumping the wrong way. You know, to me, that's still part of growth, even if the numbers go down there. Something I wanted to ask you, and we'll see. I don't know how you feel about this, but it's what's gotten me in trouble with Celtics partisans, and I understand it, is this basic question, which has been my big, you know, like if, if I've been more critical on Jason Tatum than the average person, it's been because of this exact reason. And it's offensively, let's say just that, because we, we both talked about what we like on his defense. Offensively, what is, and you can project out as many years as you want into the future, what is Jason Tatum's ideal role on a really good team? Let's say, let's say one of the, like one of the champion, one of the conference finalist teams. So not necessarily a title team because they're aberrations, but a, you know, a top four team in the league. What is his ideal role? Well, the challenge is I'm not sure he has a ceiling of grade A, you know, drive a drive an elite offense as an engine kind of player where, you know, you're playmaking and scoring and you're balancing those things and you spend a lot of time on ball. Okay, so could he be a little bit more active off ball or a hybrid? That's what I think. I think you're talking about a guy who's never going to be a great passer, but between his cutting, his spot up shooting, um, let's call it secondary creation, maybe down the line, and some of his other general skills. I think if he could put that together, he could be like a mm, 1B or kind of number two player on a good offense. A great offense gets more interesting because then you get into the scaling thing where it's like, unless he's got his P's and Q's totally dotted, unless he's just incredibly efficient with his decision making his catch and shoot game was on point he attacks closeouts um he's rescues you late in clock situations because they have a mismatch and and he knows how to go at the isolation and draw fouls or whatever then i think it gets a little bit more interesting for like a really high level offense whether you know he becomes a, a good third piece on something like that um but that's sort of the that's the lay of the land when i close my eyes and try to project forward Wait, are you are you in the same space on that or you see it differently? I'm largely in that space. I don't I don't for me the biggest thing is if I don't see him as the the linchpin of one of those teams then it just it's a harder thing cuz then you have to find that guy. And you can. I mean, they've already traded for Kyrie Irving and technically traded for Kemba Walker, functionally signed him. Um and those guys both have that capability though they're not at the same part of the age curve as Jason Tatum is. But for me, the so so I'll, I'll bring up a couple of examples, not comparing Tatum to them as players, but comparing his niche within a successful team to theirs, and that is Kyle Lowry and Clay Thompson. So both of those guys, wonderful players, very successful. I believe Clay Thompson is going to be a Hall of Famer, partially due to the team success and everything else. Kyle Lowry will have to see. I'm not a Hall of Fame guy. I think you're more into that than me. But what I mean by that is both of them probably and at various moments in their career could have or did do more um as you know that they could do more than being the number two force on a team like that however i think both of them as the best player on a good team are probably not enough to to lead a team like to a title or maybe to the nba finals depending on opponent quality and 
saying that he could have the same level of impact as a player like Kyle Lowry or Clay Thompson, to me, is not damning. Like, that's really, really, really good. And even at the third pick in the draft, I think almost any team would be thrilled to have that type of player. It's just that for me, when you watch Jason Tatum, as as talented as he is and being a being somebody who can provide value on both ends of the floor is there, but you see the difference in how he shapes a team versus, let's say, like Luka or even like Jokic, who is different because he plays center and then you get into all the complicated stuff with defense. But those guys, to me, transform a team both now and moving forward more than somebody like Tatum does. And so he's a very high-end functional piece, and that can be, you know, that can even be a Hall of Fame player. But to me, he's not that definitive, like, the, the, the locus that you build a franchise around because I just don't know what that franchise looks like. Yeah, I, I agree with that last part. I, I think in general, you're speaking to the essence of this idea of scaling and how pieces fit together. You you want to maintain value when you're next to better and better players. And so if you become the second best player on offense or the second option or the person with the second highest usage, however you want to think about that, and you still maintain most of your value, or in the case of Clay Thompson, maybe your value even goes up because you're amplifying all these off-ball things where you're going to be more open more often. That's what you're really looking for. If you make Clay Thompson your third best player, good night. You know, you probably have one of the greatest offenses ever. And with Tatum, you know, the guy I come back to, it's interesting you went to Clay and Lowry, uh, you know, very good contemporary examples. But the guy I come back to in terms of the way he plays and what his ceiling would look like and his fit is Paul Pierce. And I think if Tatum could get to Paul Pierce's level, uh, that would be phenomenal because Pierce was probably, you know, a better shooter um, that has more off ball value. We saw that when he came together with Garnett and Allen. Pierce was never a gifted passer like Tatum, but I actually think Tatum is a little behind at his age. So he'd have to catch up as a passer. And of course, you know, Pierce, the, the, the big difference right now, and I already alluded to it in this pod is that Pierce was a master of drawing contact. He threw his body uh, sometimes recklessly when he was younger into the lane and used his big shoulders to create contact, to muscle people underneath. The Celtics used to get layup after layup on those little flex cuts where he'd just seal a 6'6 guy behind him and get an easy bucket. And all of those things, so what did I just mention, like two or three big areas that Tatum would have to grow into just to be a Pierce-type player, I think it's unlikely that he does all three. And so you're talking about a ceiling that's a little lower, and then you get into questions of like, uh, okay, so so is he like a solid number two guy? Is he a solid number three guy? I think it's something in there. And, and the last thing I want to say on Tatum is the weirdness of this conversation publicly is that most people most people completely are oblivious to how good he is defensively. So you have a guy with like more overall value than people think, but he does have a longer way to go on the offensive end, despite those raw points per game numbers. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, it's worth emphasizing you and I've talked about it a little bit more. But yeah, he's been a, a useful part 
of a defense, but I think there's actually a parallel to the offensive end where he can be an important piece in a good system, but I don't think he can be the definitive piece. Like, I don't think Jason Tatum is the best defender on a great defense unless it's a true ensemble like a lot of what the Celtics have done over the last few years, and he deserves credit for being an integral part of that ensemble, but it's a little bit different than, like, what Gobert is doing in Utah, for example, or anything. And and not saying Tatum ever should be or you would expect to be that, or even, like, what Giannis is doing in Milwaukee. Lots more to talk about with Ben Taylor, but first a message from betonline.ag. It's Thanksgiving week, and that is a fantastic time for sports, especially football, and you can experience it with betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Also have the hashtag Sportsnet Challenge going on where Podcast One hosts are predicting winners in NFL games. I am currently, as of the last time I checked it updated, I am currently in the lead, which is awesome. And if you want to check out your own games on betonline.ag, Thanksgiving slate, Bills at Cowboys, Saints at Falcons, but then also, you know, strong one. I mean, San Francisco, Baltimore is going to be awesome over the weekend. New England, Houston's important too, Minnesota, Seattle. And then in college football, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Ohio State, Michigan, Florida State, Florida, Alabama, Auburn, lots of great games. So if you are going to be watching anyway and you want to make it more interesting, you can do that. Or if you think you know what's going on, and you can also check out in-game wagering, which is absolutely fantastic. But no matter how you want to do it, betonline.ag, use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. The last kind of big thing I wanted to talk about on this is I want to run an idea by you. And and I, I, I kind of hope you disagree because that would be a better conversation, which is we've not talked too much so far in this, you know, we're a little bit more than a month into the season about the top end teams. And part of that for me is that I don't think my opinions on those teams have changed too dramatically. And that makes me a little bit uncomfortable because so like let's let's put this group for now uh Clippers, Lakers, Bucks and then I would say kind of a sub tier down Sixers, Rockets, Nuggets, maybe the Jazz if they can if they can get in get in the mix. And I think there are a couple different reasons why and I can elaborate on those after I give you a chance to respond. But what shocked me was usually you get a lot of, you know, you get you're getting a lot of information especially you know end up watching a lot of those teams in the early part of the season. And I'm uncomfortable with how little my broad scale opinions on those teams has changed. Yeah, unfortunately, I I agree. I, I kind of have the same the same sort of viewpoint of it. Now, is that is that just being a year with, you know, less fluky results or nobody caught lightning in a bottle or no one's experiment has completely p- fallen apart? I don't know. You know, in, in my case, I felt I love the fact that there was so much player turnover, but I also felt more dialed in on some of that player turnover just because of the work I had done on certain guys and teams in the last like 12 to 18 months before it. So I I don't know, you know, I want to, I want to disagree and push back, but even take Philadelphia. I talked about this on my preview podcast on the thinking basketball podcast with Dave Dufour, uh, which was super fun. And when we got to Philadelphia, we were both very high on them coming out of the East but he thought they would be a monster regular season team and struggle in the playoffs. And I had the exact opposite reaction because I just think their offense, their offense is clunky in a way that it needs time, time to sort of lubricate itself. But also 
the offense for Philadelphia is probably more well suited for grit and grind playoff series where you just need enough scoring and you get the entire season to figure out how to do that and figure out how to build around Embiid and everyone's engaged and healthy and there's no rest and things like that. So even the 76ers sort of ups and downs um, as one of those teams in in a tier or sub tier near the championship level, like they're still kind of on course for me. So yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure what to make of all that. Was that was that the essence of your question? Yeah, yeah, it kind of was. And so for me, I was a little bit lower on Philly as a regular season team. I, this ties in with what you're saying because. In order to win those inordinate amount of games, I think you have to be a certain level offensively because that allows your that allows the volatility to not kill you. Because right. Milwaukee is a great example here. If Milwaukee was like the tenth offense last year, there there are nights that the other team's hitting a bunch of shots and you can't really do much about it. But if your offense is good enough, then you're in those games. Those aren't losses. And Philly just has some basically every year where or like in this they'll have some this year where. Their defense is good, but they're just not hitting anything. And as good as their defense is, the opponent's making just enough. And so they lose games they quote-unquote should have won. And, you know, the Memphis Grizzlies had this. You brought up Grit and Grind. The Grizzlies of the that era had that too. And those teams that have better defenses than offenses. And with Philly, I'm a little bit more skeptical than you are that their offense is going to work. And the reason why is... When you scale up the the defensive capability of their opposition, so instead of playing half of your games or or so against non-playoff teams, when every single one of your games is against a playoff caliber team, other than maybe the first round because the bottom of the East is so unbelievably bad right now, how are they going to generate reliable stuff? And I mean, you don't want to read too much into anything, but like, I mean, Joel Embiid just had a scoreless game the night before we record this against the Toronto Raptors. Marcus Gasol is better at defending Embiid than probably anybody on the planet other than maybe Al Horford, which is funny because he's a teammate. Um, they got to trade for Gasol. They that's, gotta, they that's, get, that, that's the answer here. They just need all the bigs. And then if you get all the bigs, then then you're going to get a new problem. And Embiid is a wonderful talent. But for me, it's also concerns with Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris. Like Tobias Harris is a talented player, but if the other team can put their best perimeter player on him, perimeter defender, I don't know that Tobias Harris can just get his. Like he's, to me... That's part of why I've been lower on Harris than a lot of people is that I don't see him as that type of that type of, you know, Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James. I it, even, no matter what you do, I can be at least reasonably efficient. He's more to me in the DeRozan lane, which is not catastrophic, but it isn't as valuable. So then to me, you're relying a lot more on defense generating offense and Joel Embiid being so dominant offensively that the other pieces that might be a little that need a little bit more lubrication get said lubrication. So is Philadelphia kind of stuck right now or what kind of flexibility do they have to make moves this season? Oh, they're pretty damn stuck. I mean, so Ben Simmons functionally. So so Embiid, they're not going to trade Tobias Harris. I don't know how teams are thinking about his money. Also, you get into the optics of trading a guy you just signed. Same thing with Al Horford. You get into all that. Theoretically, they could move Josh Richardson if they wanted to, but Richardson has the challenge, and Boston dealt with this recently, of a player who is underpaid is sometimes harder to trade because you can't make a deal work. Because most players who are as good as Josh Richardson make more money than Josh Richardson. And so then, how do you get the salary filler, all that kind of stuff? Then the elephant in the room would theoretically be Ben Simmons, but it is functionally impossible to trade Simmons in season 
because of what's called the poison pill provision. So what that is is when a player is on a rookie-scale deal, because those are artificially limited by the CBA, and then signs a big money extension, for the Sixers, as outgoing salary, Simmons counts at his current salary, which is low. I think it's about $10 million, which is a lot more than it used to be with the rookie-scale, but it's still you know, less. But for the incoming team, so whoever we want to say that would be, the potential trade target, he counts at the average of this year and the new years of his extension. So I think with Simmons, that's like 25 or 26 million. So if you think about it, where a trade, a guy counts one direction, 10 million, the other direction, like 25, that's a big, big problem. Like it's basically impossible to make the math work unless the other team has enough cap space where that just doesn't matter. And there are no teams with cap space this year. And there aren't that there isn't that much to use the word we just used about their offense. There isn't enough lubrication really to make that sort of a deal happen. So if you if you're not going to trade Embiid, you're not going to or can't trade Tobias Harris. Same thing with Horford, and you're and you can't trade Ben Simmons. Not a whole lot that they can do. Mm. And well, also, well, here's here's a big pill. here's a big criticism too. And this is, I mean, Elton Brand couldn't have known how this was all going to turn out. And if he did, you know, they probably wouldn't have given up what they did for Jimmy Butler. But remember how much, especially in the Tobias Harris trade, remember how much they gave up. Because a lot of these concerns that we had about how their offense is going to flow, if they had Landry Shamit, even just Shamit, much less all of the other things they gave up in that deal, this would look a lot better. And I mean, yeah. I'm not even sure, Sham- I, I don't think Shamit is one of their five best players, but he gives them a different look. And now they don't have that security blanket of, oh, JJ Redick running around like a madman is just going to create open buckets like right. five to six times a game. And without that, it just gets harder. And I mean, we saw Marcus Smart and numerous other guys take some of that away from the Sixers and their offense just started flatlining. But I think that that's what really concerns me is that whether it's against Milwaukee or against, you know, the Lakers or the the Clippers or whoever else can't, I don't, I don't have any doubt that their defenses can be great and that their defense can handle basically anything anybody can throw at them. But the best of the best are usually really good on both ends. And can they, let's say they're down four points with a minute to go in a clo- in an important game. Do I trust, I, I trust that they can get the stops, but can they get those buckets if it's not in transition? And I'm just a little bit less confident than I was in the abstract at the beginning of the season. So, you know, it's interesting. We started by saying, hey, nothing's changed for us. And now we're getting to places where things have changed just a little or maybe in a meaningful way, even though it's a little, because... Josh Richard Josh Richardson is the guy for me whose whose name apparently I can't say very clearly this morning, but um, he's the guy who's been a little underwhelming offensively. And you know, it's not to say that he had to take a giant leap, but they need they need something on the perimeter. Uh, Hal Neto has been very serviceable as a backup, but to your point, I'm interested in what happens when they get deep in the playoffs. The game bogs down. That kind of game will be in their wheelhouse, but they're still going to have to get buckets. And the reason why I sort of have liked the shape of their team is if you have a historically great defense, you only need a passable offense. And yes, that is a less typical path to winning a title and winning playoff series. But in their case, what's so interesting is, I mean, you know, maybe we'll see. Maybe the jury's still out on Boston and Toronto, but my anticipation is they're only going to have to take down Milwaukee with that style in the East. And I think that's where the defensive matchup comes into play, where it's like, okay, they just need enough. They just kind of need to be serviceable. 
on offense. And even with that said, if Josh Richardson, um, Harris has had some moments, they need guys like that on the perimeter who can create, who can play a little more pick and roll. And boy, man, what a depressing thought you just had. What if they had Landry Shamit and they just hadn't shipped him off? Well, and, and that gets into the, the part of the Sixers process that is so frustrating to me is that they don't have many other looks. You know, even if the, those players are worse in a in the you know maximization standpoint, it's good to have a different a different way of configuring your lineup. And because their bench is so limited, and you know maybe maybe by the end of the season somebody like Thibault or well not 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 offensively yes exactly <laughs> me, but that, that's that's kind of what stop that thought yeah that's yeah, exactly not, what I'm getting at is that there isn't a way a way within their current roster for the Sixers to make one small personnel move and just for like a couple of possessions that that activate them this is actually a criticism I have of the Clippers that the Clippers if they had this go go like point guard just for like 10 minutes a game that could just key them in transition especially when the other guys sit i think it could help help them get some easy buckets in those lineups that can't generate much offense now getting paul george makes it easier but that idea you don't, of, you don't think that's lou with them it can be but lou lou doesn't like going at that speed you know he can do it but he's not you know what i'm talking about is the player who just who's 100 all the time offensively and just and just would grab the ball, you know, kind of, I mean, obviously you're not going to get him, but the way that Russell Westbrook attacks in transition, somebody who does that for like 10 minutes a game would be really nice for them just to generate a few easy looks. Now they're so damn good. I'm not, it's not going to kill them in any way, shape or form, but yeah, it's just, some, there are a couple of teams that just, that, that, that could use a little bit of urgency at moments in their offense. And the Clippers have also been better passing. So that's not as big a concern as it was for me, you know, like because they don't have LeBron or some of those other things. But, I, and that gets into actually the other kind of big picture thing that I wanted to discuss, which is part of the reason why I haven't really fundamentally changed is because for some of these teams, I knew going in that it was going to take time. And the most prominent for that is the Clippers because we knew Paul George was going to miss a while with that shoulder issue. And there, Kevin Pelton's done some great work on how players are less effective when they've changed teams and uh and and there there's there's been a lot of good uh research and stewardship on this over the last couple of years. However, that is all fair and good and I think when you're projecting regular season records that's there. For championship contention, I generally think about let's say March 15th to June 15th. And it doesn't really matter that much other than how it predicts March 15th to June 15th, how those things go early on. So for me with the Lakers and the and the Clippers most notably because they had so much personnel, they're just fundamentally different teams. I'm not as I'm not focusing either on the positive or the negative unless it unless they get to the level where they need to on where they are right now because I know that they're going to look really different because these players have to adjust and coaching staffs and everything else. And so I, I think for me, I've just known that that grain of salt, that, that, that element has been in the back of my mind the whole time. So I'm not investing as much in the rise and fall of the Clippers or the Lakers in any given game, because I know that I'm not going to be focused as much on where they are now as much as where they are in March. Yeah. And the Clippers still, to me, haven't answered you know, this is the theme of how we got on this. They still haven't answered that question um, that I'm like looking for for their postseason run, which is how are they how are they shoring up their interior defense? What happens when they play a huge team? What happens when they play bully ball? I think in the regular season minutes from Zubac or Harrell having little flashes or whatever it is, is fine. But no one there. I mean, Harrell, the Lou Williams, Harrell. 
uh, pairing off the bench. As good as they are in pick and roll on offense, they get gutted on defense when the chips are down on the table. So I'm still really to your last point. I'm still like waiting to see how this looks when lineups are short up. It's later in the season. We get to the playoffs. I, I don't know if they can even answer those questions in the regular season other than someone, you know, essentially breaking out uh, as an excellent interior defender for them. And I don't think that's happened yet. Right. And I can imagine how challenging this is for Lawrence Frank when they're doing well as a team. And remember that they've only lost two games this year when Kawhi has played. They've, the other three have been, I believe, in his load managed games. And a lot of those were against good teams. You know, they lost to the Jazz. They lost to the Bucks. No, no biggie, no harm, no foul there losing those games. And I think that the Clippers, you, you talked about how they, you know, we're not going to know it until later. And I, I agree with that. And a good example of this is like Jermichael Green. So I've thought of Jermichael Green as a really useful potential fifth guy for them because he can defend well enough, but then offensively he unlocks a lot more spacing wise than somebody like Montrez Harrell. And the question though, is can Jermichael Green hold up physically defensively? Not necessarily against, as you said, the Detroits of the world or Orlando or anybody else like that. We're talking Lakers, Bucks, those types of which attack right. the rim relentlessly. And going being good enough is probably not good enough against yeah. those teams. And the Clippers are also, to me, the most notable here. This is part of why I picked them as my most likely champion, because they have the highest capacity to improve in season. If they don't think they're sufficient at center, they could use some of their young guys. They could use, they have filler salary. They have their own first round pick for 2020 that they could trade. And maybe that gets you to an, a sufficient upgrade or the Clippers are the most compelling big man buyout destination, whoever that could be. I mean, but the problem is most of the best of the best, like Marcus Gasol is probably the extreme example here. Like Marcus Gasol would be a game changer for the Clippers. He's also not getting bought out, partially because the Raptors are good and partially because players as good as Marcus Gasol basically do not get bought out very often. It's the tier or two tiers below him where that can realistically happen. Yeah. Are you more concerned or concerned at all about Kawhi's leg? Because I, I, the Clippers are interesting to me in the sense that their entire wing force, the George, Beverly, Kawhi, um, even Harkless has had good minutes. Just They remind me of a college team in the half court where they can fly around the ball. They're really long. That has been really impressive, better than I even thought it would be. But then at the same time, you know, you look at Kawhi's legs sometimes or the way he moves and you're like, boy, the guy can come in the game and he's a late game cheat code and he can get his buckets and all this stuff. But there does seem to be a, a laboring or this constant lingering thing that's in the back of my head. Does that concern you at all? Yeah, a little bit. I think what helps the Clippers, and it might have even been part of the appeal for both of the players about playing with each other, is that I think Kawhi doesn't have to necessarily be that guy 48 minutes a game or even 35 minutes a game to make it work. I think they have Paul George, they have all they have Lou Williams as another way to generate offense, and then they have the tools to be a very good defense, and then he can pick his spots, He'll and then the days that he's feeling good, he goes there, but then Kawhi's ability, paralleling Kyrie, incidentally, he's the guy that I always think for this too, just, just get his space and get to a spot and get a bucket that Paul George actually can't do, as great as Paul George is. 
I think that those two guys are going to they're they're going to be very symbiotic in the cauldron that is the postseason. Because remember, you're, the number of possessions slows down, and while the per possession intensity ramps up, I don't think that's as big a problem for Kawhi as the movement, like all that kind of stuff. And I think that the also no no back to backs and everything like that. I think that the shift into the playoffs will help Kawhi a lot especially on a team where he does not have to shoulder the burden as much offensively or really defensively either. And we saw that, I mean, to me, a really telling example was when the Celtics played the Clippers on, I think it was Thursday, we did the NBA cast for it. What a game. What a game. Neither Kawhi nor Paul George had the primary assignment on Kemba. It was Mo Harkless. Like they just put Mo Harkless on him and they, and Kawhi, he'll get the, you know, he can get those assignments, especially like what he was the best defender on Giannis last year in the playoffs. He can get those assignments when warranted. And I presume he'll have it on, on LeBron if they face the, if they face the Lakers in the Western Conference playoffs, but he's not going to have that every day or even every, every part of every game. And I think that's going to help ease my concerns about his, you know, the labored movement that you brought up, which is a very genuine concern. Man, I hope they're help, healthy for the playoffs. It's they're such such an awesome wing duo, and I, I just was getting tingly when you mentioned an entire series of Kawhi Leonard going up against LeBron James. The can we jump to the Lakers actually off of that? Absolutely. Yeah. So so the Lakers now that we're kind of putting a little bit more of a, a magnifying glass on it, I would say they've been slightly better to me in the sense that. I looked at that roster and didn't like the Dwight Howard move and some of those other things. I actually thought they should get Jermichael Green. Um, His corner three ball is so fantastic as a spacer. But now they're there where they are. They have this roster. And the thing for the Lakers to me to actualize was, okay, show me Anthony Davis, defensive player of the year, your giant physical bully ball, defensive oriented team. They've done that. They've they've sort of bought into, you know, whatever. If Frank Vogel has an essence or an identity, this is it. But with really, really high level talent and even a guy like Avery Bradley, I think, has if he can play like that just as a defensive tip of the spear against point of attack defenders, it helps the it it makes a very cohesive entire defensive system. So to me, the Lakers have actually been a little bit better or more encouraging from that defensive identity standpoint. And I think if they can carry that through and keep that in the postseason, um, boy, yeah, it's whew, those two teams are are spectacular if they can be full strength and, you know, sort of cash in the potential of what what we've seen so far. I would agree, especially the Lakers on the defensive end. That was where I had more questions. I, I wrote in my piece when they acquired Anthony Davis that the definitive question was going to be him offensively, not or sorry, defensively, not offensively. Could he be the linchpin of that? And I mean, the Lakers, how they conceive of their rotation in the playoffs is going to be very telling. Who plays for the Lakers is actually maybe a more interesting question than for any other championship contender. A lot of the other teams don't have those kind of questions. Rondo is a key part of this, but a lot of a lot of other guys too. How often do they play AD at the five? How often do they and who who plays at the other perimeter spots? Is it Kuzma? Is it going a little bit smaller with with some of the other guys? How much does Caruso and the other point guards? It's gonna be really interesting. But you're right that the the big question is more definitively answered a month in than I expected. And full credit to Vogel to LeBron, who's been more engaged defensively, but especially to Anthony Davis, that he's looked like the guy we wanted him to be. Last two teams I wanted to ask you about, and I'm still calibrating it for myself, 
Houston and Denver, both unambiguously talented teams, both doing very well in terms of wins and losses. Houston is 11 and 6, Denver is 12 and 3. How has their championship argument changed to you if it has at a, at this year? Boy, Houston, I would say it hasn't really at all. Um if anything, I might be slightly lower just because I feel like their defense has looked so scattered at times and so all over the place. You know, that that game against the Wizards, that that 159-158 game against the Wizards on that crazy night. I, I was actually trying to think of another game in my life where I've seen worse NBA defense that was, you know, not like an exhibition game. Um, and so so for them, maybe a little bit of a downgrade based on the defense Denver if anything has gone slightly in the other direction where my question for the Nuggets has always been about the high level of their defense you know Jokic is an underrated defensive player but he's not a move the needle protect the paint classic kind of defensive big and instead what I'm seeing when I watch them is more of like a physical bully identity they're they're the guards murray and harris are getting even more into the ball um Jokic has actually been pretty good banging around even though he's been criticized for being a little out of shape he's like banging around the paint wonderfully next to Millsap. Millsap's been good and so I, they're not there for me yet but if anything they they look more like a team that can play good playoff defense. And so that unlocks the question of like, well, wait a second, if you can get back to an elite offense and play defense like that, you might need Jamal Murray to level up or something to get that offense there. But that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm sitting right now on the nuggets. I'll do the rockets first. I there I'm lower on them for a couple of reasons. One is the defensive part that you talked about. It is true that they're missing some of their guys. I mean, Eric Gordon, partially because of the exodus that they've had at times on the perimeter. You know, they're missing him more than some other teams would. But their their depth is still really concerning for me that we talked about the different looks, you know, so okay, when you think about who's going to play forward for this team, especially if they're sliding PJ Tucker to the five, Gerald Green probably isn't going to be that guy this year. Austin Rivers is small. Eric Gordon can do it a portion of the time. You mean at the four? Yeah, the three and yeah. the four. Because, okay. I mean, Russ and Harden. So the, the, and I'm, I'm saving the, the big one for the last thing. And then Daniel House, you know, like, some, like the, there just aren't that many guys that I really trust that they can use in those two spots. But then the bigger thing for me was I was open to the Rockets having a championship ceiling because of the what if the Russ Harden thing works and if playing with Harden playing in D'Antoni's system unlocks something in Westbrook to make him a significantly more efficient player and basically you you get all the you get all the upside and you don't get any of the downside or most of it and we haven't really seen that yet I mean there I think it has helped him a lot you know like and I think it has also helped the Rockets having that guy who can push the ball in transition it's helped get them a few more makeable shots per game not that the Rockets have trouble generating those and Harden has been incredible so no no question there but Russ I mean we saw this in the Clipper game most in the most extreme fashion on the last possession of the game where he gives because he's such a bad shooter and in some cases because he's not a reluctant shooter he gives the opponent an easy tactical out that they could just say, oh, well, we could just put Russ's guy or somebody else. We can just throw extra people at Harden. And there are wrinkles that Houston has and will use in those circumstances. But the general part of that is 
is this exploitable? And the answer is yes, absolutely. So that concern for the Rockets, you know, I, I don't, it's hard for me to think that fever breaks there. The, you can get good enough that it doesn't matter as much. And I think Houston can, and maybe will get there, but I'm really skeptical that against the Lakers and Clippers and theoretically the Bucks, I, I don't think that they can solve those problems well enough for me to think that they can win two of those series. They could win one. I, I think that especially if Harden goes supernova, they can win one of those series. But winning two is a lot. Actually, I'll let you respond to that before I talk about the Nugs. Yeah, yeah. So I have a confession. Um, when you were going through that ideal Houston lineup, I, I didn't even realize it consciously until you mentioned him. Westbrook was not immediately on the court in my head. <laughs> yes. There's an <laughs> and, argument for that, too. Yeah. And and look, great. I, I totally uh, forgot about it. Great point that I was with you in Houston, possibly having we talked about it, possibly having a higher ceiling. Russ, you know, fitting, uh, excelling, being more efficient, buying in all the stuff that would give them a higher ceiling with a player of his talent next to James Harden. For me. I think that ship has largely sailed just because it, it's it's I mean it's done now. He's he's he can't shoot anymore unless he's going to come in and somehow magically rebuild his shot midseason. He can't shoot, and so you're you're stuck with the way he plays right now, and that also means you're stuck with these lineups where you have a guy that teams can cheat off of or don't need to worry about. I'm really interested. D'Antoni is creative, and so he will add wrinkles. He's shown that for years now, both here and in other stops. But I'm really interested in when you get to the playoffs and whatever it is, you're in the second round and you're running, you're spamming Harden, spread, pick and roll. And he's taking 15 threes a game and you get up on that step back and he drives every time he drives. How are you shaping your defense to help off the guys that are spotting up in the corner and on the wings? Because if Westbrook's on the court, can you erode that efficiency gain that you get from Harden, you know, being James Harden, one man offense? And I don't know the answer to that, but it's it's really telling. I think that when you were asking me that a second ago, I was like, wait, Westbrook doesn't need to be on the court. On top of that, with Westbrook not being as as dynamic an athlete now, he's not the the death threat that he would be as a driver. You know, this isn't a, this isn't MVP Russell Westbrook where okay, you give him the ball at the top of the, at the top of the key, he's wide open, he's just going to drive in, he's going to make the pass, or he's going to or he's going to do it. He's a great transition player still, but I don't think that defenses freak out the way that they used to when he drives because he's not as dominant a finisher at the rim. He's also not a good free throw shooter, so the consequences aren't nearly as dire, and I think that's a big consequence too. Yeah, great point. Okay, let's, let's nuggets. Hear the nuggets. I, I I think that. Their defense has been better, and that's definitely interesting. But as a championship contender, you have to remember that the personnel is fundamentally different for the best teams than for the average team. And their deficiencies guarding forwards are going to be a big problem. I mean, Mills, like Millsap is presumably like he's their best guy for LeBron. He's their best guy probably for Kawhi, unless maybe Jer- Jeremy Grant can step up and they can make that work offensively. And I do like the the tip of the spear type stuff. I think the guards have been more aggressive. I've liked that about Denver, but I worry sort of in a way like I did about Boston over the last couple of years that they have a better regular season defense than postseason mm. defense because the person, the talent upgrade doesn't run in their favor at all. And then offensively they've, I mean, some of it is just that they've missed shots that I would expect them to make, you know, like they're right now per cleaning glass, they're 25th in effective field goal percentage. I, I don't expect that at all. 
going into the end season, but they're also not getting to the line a ton. And they're generating good shots, but they're not generating amazing shots. Like to me, their offense has just been a little flatter. And also with Denver, I, you know, go ahead. On that, just on that point, how much of that do you think is Jokic? Because to me, I think it's clear that, you know, he, he can be engaged mentally. He can be engaged and disengaged in a way that it's not super common for superstars and I'm trying to calibrate that I'm trying to kind of put that in my pipe and smoke it to figure out like okay if is he going to be there later in the season when we last saw him in NBA basketball he was just uh driving a stake down the paint every single time in the playoffs in that incredible series um and you know that aggression level sort of was there uh I am expecting that to come back and kind of kick up these things you're talking about in the offense that are a little lethargic, but you know, am, am I am I off on that? Tell me, tell me what you think. I think you're right. I hope you're right, but it's so weird. You know, yeah, it's I, I, weird. I mean, the the you know you have these stereotypes that get out there. I mean, there are various big men that it's been been true, and you it is weird that you hear it only for big men. Jared Allen's actually talked about this, and a few other guys. So it's like, oh, does he care about basketball? And Jokic, he's a savant. And so almost every savant that we've ever seen has really been a basketball obsessive because that's the only way it makes sense. But I don't recall ever seeing somebody as uniquely talented as Jokic who just has these stretches where you just kind of like he's just his impact is so muted. Like it's just it's just bizarre. And I mean, it can be even the like he picks up a couple of useless fouls and then he's just off the floor like that happened in the Portland game at the beginning of the year. It happened a couple of times in the early portion, but it can also just be he's just not into it as much. And that is significantly harder for a team to take when they are dependent on his incandescence. Like that Denver Denver's whole theory doesn't work if Jokic isn't Jokic. And I think that he will probably be that guy for the playoffs, but I don't know. Like I I don't I don't you know it's kind of like the to use a to use a, a a modern chestnut. I haven't looked into his eyes to see his soul, but this <laughs> is just so weird that I, you know, like when something throws you off your axis, like Jokic just kind of being a little bit more apathetic for the regular season is, I don't know what to think. And I'm uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And just just to sort of um, orient everyone to what we're talking about, like his usage is down, his load and responsibility is down, his shot creation is down, his scoring is down, his efficiency is down. All of the sort of stylistic indicators and their outcomes are down. Uh, in my passer rating metric, still one of the best passers in the world. So, you know, he'll he'll make the passes. Um, he'll he'll do things that'll make your head spin. But he's just not as engaged. And I, I again, I'm banking on the idea that that will round into form later in the season. Um, you know, certainly this has happened with other players. Draymond Green is a is a great example you know steve kerr recently was talking about how every season he feels like he needs to get draymond motivated and create friction and tension to motivate him and get him engaged so it's not unheard of but it is kind of curious and strange and he's still very young and so yeah i'm not entirely sure what to make of it other than to be optimistic that it can help the denver offense that said by the way i think you made a lot of a lot of great points on their defense being a little more successful in the regular season than the postseason. 
I would rather bank on a talented, prodigiously talented in his case, player caring more than a less talented team figuring things out. Because that's just generally the way that this works, and I mean that uh, Matt Moore has talked about the the Celtics, the like the prior prior Celtics as being tryhards, and that idea that those teams have a lot more trouble because they just can't they can't dig in the well because there just isn't as much there as a team like the Clippers or the Lakers this year or the Warriors in past years, um, because the, those teams just have a lot more individual talent. I think that the Nuggets could be of that ilk. What made them special before was they have this offense that teams have trouble adjusting to and that has you know that that the theory of it makes sense. So, yeah, I'm a little bit a little bit skeptical, a little, a little bit concerned. And then the other thing for the Nuggets that I think is going to be really challenging this year is like we're thinking about them as a championship contender. This is what I brought up with Houston is they're going to be facing if they if if we want to think of the Nuggets as a championship contender, they're going to face at least two series where they are at a collective talent disadvantage because the Lakers and Clippers are both more talented than they are, and then whoever makes it out of the East presumably will be as well, unless due to injury or something else. That's a lot for this team to handle, and especially considering and you don't want to make too much out of one series, but let's make it two series. They were a lot better than the Jazz, or than sorry, than the Spurs. That series should not have been as long as it was. That was a seven-game series. I think it should have been six or five. Then, the, to me, they should have beaten the Blazers, and they lost to the Blazers. So that is a concern as well. And that you know, past is not necessarily predictive in these circumstances, especially for a team that largely was in their first playoffs. But if it happens again this year, then you start to think about: Do they need to have a talent advantage to really have a chance of winning a series? Since since we're on the Nuggets and the Rockets, can we throw one more team in here? Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a is team. it the Golden State Warriors? Because I don't think they're going to win a championship this year. <laughs> yes, it is the uh, the Eric Paschal show. Um, no, no, no. The Celtics. The Celtics are a team. I, I don't see them in this group. And I think you talked about this with Matt Moore on uh, Tears, the Tears podcast recently. And I, I'm struggling to remember where the heck you guys landed. But the Celtics are a team that when I kind of look at this group, this group we're talking about right here, they've been better, and I, I wasn't low on them at all, but they've been better to me than I expected. And I'm kinda, I kind of have the same questions on the other side of the bracket that you just raised for Denver. Can the Celtics, do they have enough on offense? Um, can Kemba you know, get stuff in the crunch time very consistently against bigger schemed playoff defenses? And on the flip side of the ball, their defense has had some Stevens magic, but are you going to be able to survive and thrive and still create an advantage in the playoffs with what they've had defensively with, you know, Tice and Williams and kind of that uh, both Williams, Rob Williams and Grant Williams, a, a rotating cast of characters at center. Um, we don't have to spend too much time on them, but I, we're in this range where the, the Celtics to me are kind of another one of these interesting teams right now and they're also they're also quite fun for me to watch they are and i i think the celtics are in this category and for me the swing factor that could push them above and i don't expect it to just because it would need to be this and is if gordon hayward is the guy that we saw before he got hurt yeah if that gordon hayward is there all of a sudden some of the questions about where jason tatum slots in jalen brown kemba's stuff and figuring out what the hell they're doing at center those become smaller problems if if Gordon Hayward can be just the the force that he was in the early part of the season, well and, then th- then you get then you get basically like two really good creators and scores to go with the other guys exactly and, and then, yeah, it, yeah yeah and so then then it like to me they would still have problems with the Bucks because the Bucks are 
incredible. You know, there's, they're one of the best teams, if not the best team on the planet. But then I think the one that would really intrigue me is a Celtic Sixers series. And these teams are very different from the Celtic Sixers series a couple of years ago. But the idea that they can slow down Philly, Philly wouldn't get reliable buckets, and that as good, great as the Sixers could be defensively, that the, the, the Celtics could get just enough. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that to get beyond that, to really, to imagine them beating the Clippers or the Lakers or the Bucks, I think that's a little bit different. But I think they, I, I actually, in some ways, like their ceiling part of this with how Hayward has played. I did not expect this at all. But their ceiling part of it, if Hayward is this guy, I think they might have a little bit more. Because remember, they, if he gets there, then they're not as dependent on any sin, single player as the Nuggets are with Jokic or the Rockets are with Harden, for example. Boy, the a Celtic Sixers series. That's I need I need a Luka playoff series right now. And now, well, okay. Here, I'll, to... I'll give you a choice. Would you rather have a Celtic Sixer series or a Raptors Sixer series? I think a Celtic Sixer series, with the caveat that the Raptors are one of my favorite teams to watch, and I, I, I like a Raptors Celtic series would be an extremely fun series. But I think the chess match X's and O's of a Celtics Sixers series like like would it be okay the second you said this I'm starting to think about strange things and fun things would it be possible to have an end game lineup in the Celtics Sixers series where Marcus Smart is playing center guarding Joel Embiid well I mean is it possible to have a Celtics Sixers series where I, I, I would have to check the actual listed heights where basically every all Celtic the, is shorter than than four of the five Sixers yes yes you, yes exactly all of the Celtics on the court are shorter than all of the Sixers on the court this needs to happen it would be fun and I'll, i mean also i know there are people who are already agitating in philadelphia for brett brown to get fired if they lose that series i think that's how brett brown gets fired yeah maybe yeah we'll see hopefully hopefully we'll see that oh it'd be it'd be a lot of fun and i mean especially if that's the two three then there's a, a lot and i mean considering how bad the bottom of the east is probably would see those teams get through unless the pacers really put it together or something else like that the four five also by the way you want to be in the two three because the four five is going to be just a brutal series this year in all likelihood right with miami also in yeah. play there yeah. yeah and i mean miami might get the four like you could you could put these in any di- different alignment but there are five to be higher end teams in the east than than everybody else so you just want to be out of that series yep great point uh anything else you want to discuss we've already talked plenty <laughs> no no i think that's it uh yeah that was well, that was great that was a lot of fun well thanks so much for taking the time of course thank you for having me Thanks again to Ben Taylor for taking the time to come on. You can check out his work on YouTube, subscribe to his Patreon, read his book, all done under Thinking Basketball. And you can also check him out on Twitter. Great follow. E-L-G-E-E, the number three, the number five. And I mean, I think he's putting out some of the best content out there. So you should definitely check it out if you are not already. If you want to support this show, and I appreciate that, just like I appreciate you supporting all Ben's work, you can do so in a lot of ways. You can subscribe, download every episode. It's great for a show like Real GM Radio because it comes out at different times each week. You can also spread the word however you see fit and leave a rating, leave a review and podcast player of your choosing. All of those things help other people find the show. That's why it's great if it's Apple Podcasts, but I understand if it's not. And the single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors, betonline.ag, Podcast One, promo code gets you a 50% sign-up bonus, which is fantastic, and tells them that you came from us. So hopefully they will continue to advertise with us. If you want to check out my, my other work, 
Dunked On is still going on strong. Nate and I are actually doing our awards pod, the first one of the year. We're recording it later today, so it'll probably be available around the same time, doing the live show tonight and then doing another live show next week. And then I'm actually going to be out of town a bit. Writing will be, of course, at The Athletic. And if you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to make that happen. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't promise that I'll respond, but I do try to. But all those input, all the, all that insight helps make the show better. That is exactly why I ask for it. And I really do appreciate it. Don't know exactly what I'm going to do next week, but I have a couple different ideas, so we'll see how that happens. But that's why you subscribe to every episode, hopefully. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet all in one. It has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that could even store your Surface Pen. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.